Chapter 3 of Into the Frozen South by James Marr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Voyage Begins There was a great deal to be done before settling down, however. The ship was so deep laden with stores and equipment that every precaution was necessary in the event of our meeting bad weather. Our decks were still littered with every imaginable object under the sun. Lifeboats were crammed with supplies, ropes in coils, ropes in flakes, canvas in bolts, innumerable gadgets connected with science, art, and the human stomach filled the planking. So it was lash up and stow with a vengeance, for all this clutter had to be brought within reasonable bounds of safety. And until this was done, steady rest was out of the question. My chief concern, I found, was to keep out of the way of more skilled seamen than myself. I was uncommonly willing, but a trifle lacking in ability, like the Irishman who tried to sound the depth of water in the ship's boilers by dropping a stone down the funnel at the end of a rope. At midnight... I went down to the stokehold again for another watch amongst the coal dust. They told me that the ship had been literally bombarded with wireless wishes from our countless friends. But for the coal dust, I should have been as happy as a sand boy. But you can't have everything, even when you're Antarctic bound. In the morning, we saw the last of England, or rather the foam that guards old England for the big seas breaking on the Silly Isles and the Bishop Rock practically hid them from view. As a fair wind was blowing, we stretched our canvas, and I tried to familiarize myself with the mysteries of a sailing ship. I decided that I had a lot to learn that even scouting hadn't taught me. Ropes are queer things. They always seem to turn up where least expected. They always foul something just when they are most needed. Try for the first time to coil down a split new rope that hasn't had its kinks taken out, and you'll understand what I mean. I should like to draw a thick veil over what happened next. But even a scout, selected for such an eventful experience as this, must bow his head to certain circumstances. Perhaps Neptune didn't quite understand how important an individual I was. At all events, the smell of the engine room when next I went on watch at noon began to be afflicting. It hadn't been attar of roses before, but now they said it was because the quest was so deep laden that she rolled so much. But I wasn't concerned so much with causes as with effects. Those rolls seemed unending. At first I was afraid the ship would sink. Later, I was afraid she wouldn't. More seasoned men, I wonder why seasickness is always considered amusing, advised various remedies. To drink hot salt water steadily was one. To swallow salt pork at the end of a string was another. The best remedy proposed was hard work, so I clenched my teeth and resolved to stick it out. I had to be one up on Mooney, who had thrown up the sponge by now, as well as practically everything else. I will draw the veil. Yet even when seasick, 
it was possible to realize something of the splendor of the sea. Big ships went past, thrusting white water grandly before their bows, with gay-colored bunting streaming from their spans, to wish us the best of fortune. A noble windjammer, clothed in shimmering canvas, from truck to rail, overhauled us, leaning to the strenuous breeze with the dark shadows playing mysteriously in her bulging canvas and the foam flicking over her cat heads. I was one of that goodly brotherhood, even though a sick one. It was my right to laugh at the whipping whitecaps, though I hardly felt like laughing at anything. Never mind. Nelson was sick every time he left port, so who was I to complain? At midnight, I went down below again and got to work, though my stoking would not have won a prize. Since no one likes to admit that Neptune has beaten him, I deluded myself into believing that I had caught a chill by sitting in the cold air on deck after the stifling heat of the stokehold. Any excuse serves a victim to mal de mer. Then, too, there was the question of sea legs. There were so many things to fall against, and most of them were either very hot or very sharp. The things one tried to grab when the ship took one of her soul-shifting rolls floated away out of reach. The floors were mostly on end, so that without exaggerating, I decided that death could hold no greater terrors. Limp and sore and miserable, I found it difficult to stick it out through the watch. But by assuring myself that it wasn't really seasickness at all so much as that chill, I managed it and crawled bunkwards, feeling several times more dead than alive. No doubt I could have succumbed, thrown up the sponge, and let the unkindly sea have its way with me. But already, short as had been my sea service, I was beginning to learn the deep water lesson that aboard a small ship every man counts, and that if one man shirks his job, that same job must be divided amongst others who already have enough to do. In my bunk, I lay for eight forlorn hours and then it was up again and down to that pestiferous stokehold, where the same program was gone through. I told myself that I wasn't the only victim. Others were perhaps even more miserable than myself. And here's a curious fact, if you think that it helps you to carry on. Queer, I admit, but it does. You have a sort of pride in your own powers of resistance. It gives you something to think of, and as they tell you that mal de mer is more a mental ailment than a physical, your mind can't concentrate quite so closely on its own woes. That's my opinion, anyhow, whatever others may think. About now, all available hands took part in cold trimming, and my labors were consequently lightened. Scout Mooney was clean out of the running suffering ten times as much as I was. And then, by way of a bracer, came a welcome change in work. Instead of shoveling coal, I was set on to scrubbing and cleaning, part of every ship's everlasting program. Inside and outside, I scrubbed the engine room and 
like the first lord of the admiralty in the play i scrubbed that engine room so thoughtfully that soon i was well not the ruler of any navy but at least granted the boon of joining the deck squad and ordered to take my first trick at the helm from eight o'clock at night after a bit of instruction they handed the wheel over to me and i had the ship between my own two that was something worth while i counted in the scheme of things the wind had dropped somewhat and the ship's motion was easier the topsail was furled and i found that once i'd got the hang of things steering was enjoyable a ship is as responsive to her helm as a horse is to its bit you can do practically anything you like with her and the clean strong air up there cleansed me more than i can tell the shuddering misery of seasickness lessened i had the ship to watch and to learn to understand she was given to little restive tricks that had to be guarded against and when your mind is so closely occupied your own woes diminish amazingly it was a quiet placid night very enjoyable with the ship noises joining together into a chorus that was rather thrilling ropes flapped in the wind for all the world like distant drums calling to action the gently parted water gurgled past our sides and seemed to chuckle a welcome to the quest mysterious lights loomed up through the growing haze red white and green the magic of the sea was closing its grip on me and i took that strumming as applying to myself it was my battle call during the rest of the night i got to my bunk at midnight we ran down into fine weather coming on deck at eight in the morning i saw a bluer sky than i'd ever seen it was wonderful beautiful and the air was caressingly warm the wide horizon was flawless there was never a cloud in the serene blue sky everyone's spirits vastly improved there was laughter and the hearty note of a high endeavor in the voices of nearly all hands because the wind had dropped all sail had been taken in and the ship was proceeding under steam alone and i fear not making much of a job at it at her best the quest was no ocean greyhound the top speed we were able to make under engines alone was about five and a half knots an hour a little quicker than we could have walked but judging by the stern pounding of the engines below we might have been breaking records i was standing the morning watch eight to twelve the watch when most of the shipwork is done and always there is a lot even in a little ship before i trod a deck plank i had a notion that being at sea consisted for the most part in sprucely pacing the decks and pointing a telescope at the horizon hoisting my slacks and singing thrilling sea chanties the reality was very different apart altogether from taking a regular trick at the wheel the easiest part of seafaring in many ways there are lookouts to be kept decks to be washed 
If the ship is going down, you give a final scrub to her planks, remember? Paintwork to be wiped over, sails to be loosed and set and furled and overhauled, old ropes to be spliced, whipped and served, new ropes to be coiled and recoiled and trailed out astern in order to remove the annoying kinks that take up so much space on a crowded deck. The cook demands assistance. There are always errands to go, and so the time slips by so rapidly that almost as soon as a watch begins, it is ended. Then you go below, where you are at liberty to do what you like, in reason. Your time is more or less your own, and it is wonderful how many odd jobs you can find to, to occupy the time. Of course, you sleep a lot. That's the sailor's favorite recreation according to my way of thinking. Sleep aboard ship is a very sacred thing. You never disturb a slumberer unnecessarily. But apart from sleep, you've got innumerable chores to perform in your own interest. There are your clothes to be washed and mended. Since laundresses don't form part of an Antarctic ship's crew, also, if you are interested in cleanliness, there is yourself to be kept immaculate, though in none too much fresh water. At first, I didn't believe it when I was told by one of the crew that he and seven others had enjoyed a perfectly sumptuous bath apiece in one half pannikin full of warm water. But afterwards, I quite understood. They used a shaving brush. Keeping a diary, too, always occupies a certain amount of time. And from the outset of the voyage, I kept as faithful a record of the little happenings of every day as I could. Of course, I missed many of the most important happenings that were the property of the seniors of the expedition. But I have hopes that this casual record of the life we lived may prove of interest to those who have never braved the frozen south in a 125-ton cockboat. Already, although only a couple of days out, we seem very remote from ordinary life. We're a little self-contained community all on our own, bound together by the bonds of a common determination aware of the dangers and discomforts that await us, but cheerfully resolved, at least I was, to make the best of anything that came our way. I went on watch again at four o'clock, the first dog. Good times and decent health returned. Life lost a lot of that brownish-yellow tinge that had hung at its edges lately. At 4 a.m., I was roused out for the graveyard watch turning out into darkness, cold and reluctant to leave Blanket Alley. At daylight, I was put on the general housemaid's work of the ship, scrubbing decks, polishing brasses, washing the paint. A strong breeze was blowing during this watch, and the ship was more than a little lively. She shipped a little water, too, wetting us to the skin, but we were all cheerful, and there were no complaints. We were, as the boss said, shaking down, dovetailing ourselves into our allotted places, and rubbing off the awkward corners. For aboard a little ship, there's no place for corners. Today, Captain Worsley, the sailing master, gave me the job of lamp trimmer. 
and in pursuit of my duties I went forward to find some oil, since even Antarctic lamps won't burn without fuel. I had just unlashed a drum and was in the act of opening it, when Sir Ernest Shackleton, who was nearby, gave me a needed lesson in common-sense sailorizing. Don't try to do too many things on your own until you've got the hang of them, he said. If any accident happened and that drum fetched away, the boson would be blamed, because safe stowage is his job. When you mix in with another man's job, always remember that he might have to take the blame that's rightly due to you. Consequently, I lashed the drum up again, and the boss, watching closely with those eyes that always seemed to see everything down to the last little detail, said, I see you've made it good and fast, but you've put on a slippery hitch. Here's the right way, and it's the right way that counts at sea. Then he explained carefully how the thing should be done, and afterwards gave me a lesson in whipping frayed rope ends. With all the weight of responsibility he carried on his shoulders and all his worries, for he had many, he still found time to interest himself in an obscure scout. But he was like that. I think that was one of the qualities that made him great. The ship was already proving something of a disappointment to him. Her speed was far short of what was expected, and there seemed a probability of our reaching the ice too late. But he still had time and consideration enough to teach me my job personally. Of course, with the freshening wind, we had set sail again to help along our insufficient engines. Under her press of canvas, the ship made fairly good weather, but the amount of water she brought aboard was considerable and gave the boss some concern. We were so stacked and cluttered with important gear that any sea might seriously damage our equipment. Sir Ernest wondered what was likely to happen when we got into the roaring forties. But even so, when next day we had to take in sail, he was still able to interest himself in my progress and safety. In taking in sail, it was my lot to help make fast the stay sail, and to do it effectively, I got into a somewhat precarious position in the bows. When I went aft, Shackleton called me to him and said, I saw you right forward just now, youngster. I like to see you do it. It shows zeal. But just remember that a sailor isn't made in a dog watch. I don't expect you to do that sort of thing until you've got your proper sea legs. He was always like that, always considerate of his people, anxious for their safety and comfort and general well-being. Then he gave me to understand, without a lot of flapdoodle, that I wasn't shaking so badly, and I left him in a glow of satisfaction, because it is something to please such a leader of men. We got shortened down in time, but none too soon, because before very long a real gale that had got up with astonishing rapidity was blowing. In five minutes or thereabouts the ship was rolling alarmingly taking such heartful sweeps that I, who knew little of the capabilities of a ship, wondered how soon she would capsize. She put her whole soul into that rolling, swinging her yardarms through the water on either side. 
white water piled over our rails, and the strumming and harping of the wind in the stripped spars was awe-inspiring. Everywhere the sea was whipped to white-capped anger. The sky was lowering, covered with black-edged clouds, and the rattle of the hurled spit drift was deafening. You'd never think there could be so much noises during a gale at sea. At ten o'clock I went, not without trepidation, I admit, to take my trick at the wheel, but the boss interfered here. I can't say I was sorry. The ship that in fine weather seemed friendly and docile under my hands promised in this flurry to be more than a bit of a handful. Shackleton told me that I hadn't enough experiences yet to handle the quest in a seaway, so I got busy with other work. I dare say that from the deck of a 40,000-ton Atlantic liner, this gale might have seemed a trifle, nothing more than a cap full of wind and a very slightly disturbed sea. But seen from the quest, it was an eye-opener. Big seas came cascading over the bows in an unceasing procession, and at every roll the ship seemed eager to bail half the Atlantic aboard over her rails. I found this everlasting erratic movement very tiring. The wind sort of confused one, and the annoyance at the unending slashing of the sprays was great. To steady her, we tried to set the mizzen, but almost as it was sheeted home, there came a rip-snorting squall that split it badly, so all our work went for nothing. The sail was taken in, and the steadiness that might have resulted from the weight of wind it could have carried was denied us. Officially, this breeze was termed a moderate southwest gale. At the time, I wondered what a real storm was going to be like. To me, the waves seemed to pile up like mountains, towering high and very high above us, swinging down towards the shivering hall as if determined to overwhelm it, only to swing us up and up to a watery, noisy crest on which we perched like the ark on Mount Ararat to stare down into vast caverns, veined with milky white and noisy to a degree until down we swooped with a curious, unsettling, corkscrew-like motion that made one's middle part seem like water, to wallow and ride in a very pit of anger. Well, later on I was to learn to my satisfaction what a real gale was. This was only a flea bite, but it served to give us all some idea of the seaworthy qualities of the gallant little quest. So lively was the motion that it was an impossibility to pretend to serve a meal below. The dishes and plates refused to remain on the tables, in spite of the fiddles and the devices seamen use at sea. Consequently, we were supplied with meat sandwiches on deck, which we ate as best we could and counted ourselves lucky if we found our mouths. In my pride of recovery, for seasickness was now little but an unpleasant memory, I felt sorry for Mooney. He was having the thinnest of times, but game to a degree with it all. He tried his best to overcome the complaint, but it was too much for him. During this snatch of bad weather, 
he was incapable of stirring hand or foot. He made no outcry about it, but his face told more than many words could have done, and there was no comfort to be found for him anywhere. He simply had to stick it out and make the best of it. We were making no headway worth speaking of all this time. The wind was foul, and the lop of the seas undid any useful work the engines might have done. On account of the slamming and pitching, something went wrong with those engines, and though during the afternoon the wind lessened and the sea began to smooth itself out rather agreeably, there was a curious knocking note down in the engine room that convinced us all that things were not as they ought to be. Later, this disorder down below became so pronounced that Sir Ernest Shackleton decided to put into Lisbon for overhaul, even at the cost of wasted time. During the night, the gale decreased into nothing, and in the morning the weather was quite decent. Very decent, I called it, but that was possibly by way of contrast. You have to weather a blow before you can appreciate good times. Sunday though it was, the ordinary work of the ship had to be performed, and the grimy disorder resulting from the gale removed. We managed to get into wireless touch with Lisbon and asked that a tug might be dispatched to help us in our limping progress. We needed it, for though the weather was growing gloriously fine and the sea was smooth, we were hardly making headway. A tug was promised, and we began to look forward to the joys of the land. When I went on deck at midnight to stand the middle watch, the lights of the Portuguese coast were already invitingly in sight. Sir Ernest Shackleton was in charge, peering anxiously ahead. The Portuguese coast is not a particularly friendly one, especially at night, for the Burlings are an awkward reef on which many a good ship has come to disaster. At the wheel I was constantly busy obeying orders to alter course as this light and that hove in sight. To me, there was a fascination in this creeping through the night that is hard to describe. But by two o'clock, the boss decided that I had had enough of it and sent me below to prepare some food, whilst Mr. Lysot took my place at the helm. At four o'clock, I answered the frantic call of my bunk and lost all interest in everything for four gorgeous hours. Turning out again with a thrill of expectancy, I found the ship some two miles off the coast. Because of the clearness of the atmosphere, I got a very good view of Portugal, which from the sea is very beautiful and quaint. The land rose steeply out of the placid, colorful sea, and the green slopes were plentifully dotted with red-roofed, whitewashed houses. A bright sun bathed the picture radiantly, and the discomforts of the recent storm were immediately forgotten. Here was something new, something foreign to occupy attention. Now it was a cluster of smiling houses 
Again, it was a frowning castle perched high on a mighty peak. We crawled along at slow speed, envying, oh, how we envied, the big, powerful liners that steamed vigorously past, all of which, recognizing in the little disheveled cockboat a ship that was to fare farther and see greater marvels than they had ever seen, signaled us greetings. An enormous P&O boat came charging up, ran so close alongside us that we swung and cavorted in her wash like a dinghy, and with bright bunting slatting from her span, raced out of sight ahead. She could have carried us on her deck with the greatest ease, yet we flattered ourselves that we were proper sailormen and not merely steamboaters. Watching the shifting panorama of the coast was not the only occupation, however. The ship, in preparation for her visit to civilization and the far-from-remote possibility of her again becoming a show ship, must needs undergo her spring cleaning. And so Sugi Mugi became the order of the day. Everything washable was washed until we shone from stem to stern and the deck hamper was shifted so as to present some appearance of tidiness. But at noon, we got a wireless from Lisbon to say that the ordered tug found it impossible to face the short, steep seas that were then running. And consequently, we crawled into Cascas Roadstead at the mouth of the Tagus and anchored there on the advice of the pilot who boarded us. Portuguese pilots like their comforts, I think, and cordially dislike night navigation. But this one found little to his liking on board the quest. If the ship was uncomfortable in open water in any sort of sea, she was doubly so at anchor, for instead of being permitted her free, even rolling, every time she started one, the anchor cable fetched her up with a short, agonizing jerk that seemed to lift a man's spine up through his skull and threatened to throw him clean out of his bunk. So little did our gallant Portuguese pilot like this motion that he found a means to secure a tug, and at eleven o'clock we were piloted into quieter water in the river's mouth, after which we got what was really the first decent rest since leaving the mouth of the channel. That was a good sleep. The only trouble was that it was far too short. At six thirty in the morning we got up our anchor and, escorted by the tug, moved serenely up the Tagus. A very fine panorama of Lisbon unfolded itself as we progressed. Backing the general view was the high throne Pena Palace, where ex-King Manuel fled to join his mother during the revolution. Almost alongside it was the old Moorish castle built in days when the Antarctic was unknown to human ken. Lisbon being built on several hills, the streets are consequently steep for the most part. Most of the buildings are white, with red roofs, showing up finely against a background of olive green, 
and the general effect is one of almost oriental quaintness. But over the city there hangs an atmosphere of forlornness and decay, as though this place from which set sails explorers as intrepid as those contained in the quest in search of unknown lands had Ichabod written largely across its clustered roofs. At nine o'clock we made fast to a buoy about which the muddy waters of the Tagus swirled greedily, whilst a suitable berth was found for us. Lying there, bathed in sunshine, almost oppressed by the warmth, we indulged in the glory of a bathe, a privilege which, after long abstinence, must be experienced to be appreciated. All the caked salt of our voyaging was washed away. Our pores were given a chance, and the ensuing sensation of vigor and well-being was almost too delightful for description. In the late afternoon, we were taken in hand by fussy tugs and punted and hauled and wedged into our berth. During all the working hours of this day, I was on duty with Green, the cook, an enterprising man who thoroughly reveled in his job. His ability to contrive and make shift was remarkable, and there were those aboard the quest who solemnly vowed their belief that, given an ancient pair of sea boots, Green could serve up a dinner that would leave the Ritz or the Carlton amongst the Elsa Rands. On this night, we began to understand wherein we differed from the Elizabethan voyagers. Times have altered since Francis Drake set forth from England with a high heart and an abounding ignorance, intent on discovering a shortcut to India. Such entertainment as his ships were provided with was meager, musical instruments for the most part. This, our first night in Lisbon, was enlivened by a remarkable cinema exhibition in the wardroom. Not that we were given hectic Wild West pictures. We were shown our own hazards during the gale of October 1. Realistic pictures enough, taken on the spot without any suggestion of faking, and developed and completed aboard. Not a few of us, seeing how the quest looked to the camera, came to the conclusion that we were bigger heroes than we really were for the seas appeared so enormous that it was a miracle to us to know how our ship remained afloat. One thing is certain, had I seen those pictures before sending in my application to join the expedition, that application would never have been written. Even the blood of an enthusiastic scout turned cold at thought of the dangers he had passed but it all gave us confidence in our floating home when we saw how doggedly she met the big gray seas and trudged resolutely forward on her southward way. Amongst white seafarers, the word dago stands for mild dishonesty. With a genuine thrill, as one tasting the real salt of adventure, I heard the order given for the night watchman to arm himself in order that the countless valuables aboard the quest might be properly safeguarded, and with a big revolver bulging his pocket, the selected man took up his duties, whilst we, more fortunate, went below 
and coiled down for the sweet delight of an all-night inn. End of chapter 3